0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Sunday on the new sound system. There's so much new here to be excited about. We have a new sign. This is my first time to preach on our new stage But the real reason I'm excited is I get to share Psalm 112 today, which is not new, but um, still great and awesome. Before we get into Psalm 112, I want to tell you a story. My oldest son, Jack, is 19, and one of the things we like to do together is to hunt. We hunt deer when deer are in season and legal. And then uh, this year, we're on a new lease, we hunt hogs and varmints all through the year. Varmint is a technical term, it includes coyotes and foxes for those of you who are thinking like Bugs Bunny or Road Runner when I say varmint, um, Elmer Fudd I guess actually. But anyway, so we've got this lease, it's about 30 minutes away, we can get out there all the time and uh, we learned though early on that the hazards for summer hunting are different than winter hunting. One night, it was about midnight, and we decided we were going to go sit in one of our stands. And so we opened up the door to the stand, and in the corner in front of one of the chairs was this pretty good-sized wasp nest. Had about a dozen wasps sleeping peacefully right there in front of the chair. Now, I don't like wasps. I've been stung by them many times. I respect the wasp, but I am not afraid of the wasp. And my son, in fact, most of my kids are wildly afraid of wasps. And by that I mean the sound of a wasp will send them running. My kids, when they get out the spray, they only use the spray that can hit something from like 30 feet away. And we have a ratio of about one can per wasp. It is death by drowning for those wasps. I don't think the insecticide has anything to do with the way they die. But anyway, so as I shine the light on the nest, I figured there is absolutely no way I can get Jack Hager up into this blind with me. So I offered to take his seat, which is the one right in front of the nest, and I was surprised when he would said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll follow you. See, my plan was if we just sat still and quiet, The wasps wouldn't mess with us, which in hindsight wasn't a great plan, especially when guns are involved that make loud noises. So we get up in there and get settled, and so far, so good. We've got the guns out, the windows are open, we're ready to go. Then I notice a wasp crawls up from underneath my chair. turns out there was a nest under there that we had failed to see. So I used to be in the army, and I know that if you want to quietly kill something, you pull out a knife. So I get a knife out, and um, the wasp is now on my leg at this point. So I reach over, I pin him with the knife, and cut him in half. Easy. One dead wasp. And I see another wasp walking across the shelf underneath the window, under the net. I reach up, pin it, cut it. Dead wasp. Then... Jack says, "Dad, I think one's crawling on my neck, which surprised me because he was much calmer than I expected him to be when he said that. And I thought, okay, it's great. Jack has finally gotten over his fear of wasps. So I shined the light on his neck, and there it was crawling up his neck and then onto his cap. So I told him, I said, hey, it's up there. I'm going to kill the wasp." you know, kind of made motions. I'm going to cut it. Like I'd done the other ones, and so I took my knife, I reached up there, and I pinned the wasp on top of the cat, on top of the cap, and cut one dead wasp. Problem solved, emergency averted. But in that moment, Jack wasn't able to control his fear of wasps any longer. And as I lifted the knife up off the top of his head, he quickly rushed to brush the dead wasp off the top of his head running his fingers underneath the blade of my knife. End of hunting trip, and we got to try out that brand new ER at that new hospital on South Broadway. So if you're thinking, how can one of our pastors be so dumb? He must have made this story up. Here is photographic evidence. Now, before Tom shows this picture... I want to give you a warning it's graphic so if you're going to like throw up at the sight of blood please close your eyes now and I will let you know when it's safe to open your eyes okay Tom let's have the before picture yeah that's awesome and the after picture which is my favorite yeah eight stitches later okay Tom take the picture down it is now safe to open your eyes You just missed dad of the year material right there. Thank you very much. Wait for my nomination later. So aside from Jack having a fool for a dad, how did this happen? More specifically, if Jack knew the wasp was dead and there was a very sharp knife close to his head, why did he stick his hand up there? And here's why and it's the link to our passage today. He feared the wasp more than he feared the knife. His fear of the wasp, even though that wasp was dead, was so great that he couldn't stand it any longer, and he just had to get it off of his head. It was the fear that ruled all his other fears, even his fear of very sharp knives. So my question For you and for me today, is what do we fear most? What's the thing you pray about the most often or maybe even obsess over? Maybe it's your family, your kids, something happening to them, which is a parent's greatest fear. If you're younger, maybe you're just plain afraid of the dark. If you're an adult and you have responsibilities, You've got concerns about your job or your finances. What happens if I don't get the promotion or that raise? What if I get fired? Or just the fear of the future, something that is coming. Or maybe you're just afraid of getting stung by wasps and cut by your dad. You know, we're continuing our series on wisdom, and our passage today identifies one fear that rules all other fears. One fear that drives out other fears, controls those fears. So turn with me to Psalm 112, our passage today, Psalm 112. And while you're turning or clicking, however you're getting to Psalm 112, let me give you a preview of how we'll spend the next few minutes together. After I introduce the Psalm, we'll talk about what that Psalm meant to the original audience as they first heard it, what it meant then. And then we'll look at what this psalm says, or what it means, or the implications for us today or now. So, then and now. So please follow along as I read Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved, he will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news, his heart is firm. Trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. The author of this psalm is unknown, but it falls in the Psalter. The book of Psalms is the second of a group of three psalms, Psalm 111, 112, and 113, that all start with the same phrase, praise the Lord. And if you were to compare Psalm 112 to Psalm 111, you'd find several similarities. They're both acrostics which means that each colon of poetry starts with a sequential letter in the Hebrew alphabet. You also see several words or themes that are repeated. Delight, righteousness, established, grace, and compassion, and fear. And in the last verse of Psalm 111, the author says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Psalm 112 begins with, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So while Psalm 111 is primarily about the attributes of God, it transitions at the end to say that because of God's greatness, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the foundation of wisdom. And then Psalm 112 describes what those attributes look like in a man or a woman who has that same fear of the Lord. In fact, you could say that Psalm 112 put skin on Psalm 111. But before we dig into the Psalm, I want to explain two warnings as we approach this Psalm. The first is this this genre is wisdom literature, which means that these are general principles, not formulas or guarantees. We know it's wisdom literature because of the themes, obedience to God's laws, blessing that follow from that, and the contrast between the upright and the wicked. People who believe in the prosperity gospel, which is not a true gospel, believe that God desperately wants to bless you now with health and material wealth if your faith is strong enough or if you're obedient enough. And that's not what this passage means. In fact, there's a switching back and forth between the singular and plural in Hebrew that shows that this is meant to be Typical of the blessings for the collective people of God, not an individual promise or guarantee. We all know there's a long list of heroes of the faith in Scripture, people the Bible says feared the Lord who were not wealthy, who didn't have big families, and at times were afraid. The other warning is that this psalm was originally given to the people, to the nation of Israel, who were living under the Mosaic covenant which we are not. That covenant was often referred to as the law, and God's way of dealing with Israel was to graciously bless them in these very ways so that their good fortune, if you will, would draw other nations to the God of Israel. So, for example, Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6, Moses says to the Israelites, "'For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. "'The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people "'for his treasured possession.'" Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So this was an act of grace, not because there was something special or worthy about the Israelites other than God had made a promise to their forefather Abraham. Then in verse 12, Moses says, "...and because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep you with you the covenant and the steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, and increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that He swore to your fathers to give you." You shall be blessed above all peoples. Later, we'll talk about what the death and resurrection of Jesus does to change this, but we can be confident that the original audience rightly saw a much greater link between their obedience and blessing than applies to us today. But just as Psalm 112 looks back to the greatness of God in Psalm 111, the blessing described here. Is really not for the people being blessed. It's to point others back to the greatness of the blessor. So, with that in mind, let's look at the text in a little more detail. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. We see two things about this person, this man or woman. The first is, they fear the Lord. As Mike said last week, this type of fear is not the same as being afraid of or scared of something. It's reverential awe. It's respect. The second is that because of what they think about the Lord, they obey Him. Not just obey Him, but the text says they greatly delight. They're motivated by their worship of the Lord into obedience, and then they're delighted with knowing That they stand right with the Lord. Then, as we move into the rest of the psalm, we see the first of four fears that the fear of the Lord controls or rules. And the first is family fear. Verse 2 says, His offspring will be mighty in the land, the generation of the upright will be blessed. A few observations here. The first is that there will be offspring, and those offspring are mighty which elsewhere is a military term, valiant. So we know these offspring are powerful, influential, and wise. And they are a blessing to the upright, to the faithful, a blessing to others. So family fears, will I have kids? What will happen to them? How will they turn out? All ruled by the fear of the Lord. The second ruled fear in verse 3 is financial fears. Verse 3 says, Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. We read wealth and riches, and we think of the mega rich, Bill Gates rich, someone much richer than we are. But the way the Hebrew works here, the word for wealth actually modifies riches, and when paired together, a better reading would be sufficient riches. In fact, not only are their needs met sufficiently, but in verse 5, we see they have enough money to lend generously and justly, not taking advantage of the power that they would have over the less fortunate. And then in verse 9, we see they're able to give to the poor generously without regard for return. Their needs are met and they use their extra their sufficient wealth to bless others. So that's the second fear ruled by fear of the Lord, financial fears. First was family fears, the second, financial fears. The third fear ruled by fear of the Lord is fear of the dark. Verse 4 says, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Notice the upright are not the light, and everything isn't going perfectly for them. They're surrounded by darkness, but light is graciously given to them. God provides for them, He guides them, He gives them hope in the face of adversity. You know, fear of the dark is something that you never really outgrow, which may come as a surprise to some of the kids here in the audience. But kids, if you don't believe me, ask your parents this question. When they're alone in the house at night by themselves, are the lights on or the lights off? I guarantee your parents don't sit in the dark until it's time to go to sleep. We much prefer the light. But this is really more than just fear the dark. This likely refers to the conflict between the upright and the wicked and the opposition that the upright will face. So that's the third fear, fear of the dark. Second was financial fear, and the first was family fear. The next fear, the fourth fear, is fear of change. Look in verse 6. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. The righteous, those who fear the Lord, will never be moved or maybe never be shaken. In the face of challenge or adversity, they are steadfast. She does not falter. She does not slip. And it's not just change, it's specifically bad change. Look at verse 7. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. So it's not that bad things don't happen to this God-fearer, and that's what makes him unique. It's his response. His heart is firm, which in Hebrew is in the passive. Indicating it's something that comes from outside of him or is done to him. And it's not just that his heart, which represents his will and emotions here, is strong. It's that that strength remains secure in the trust of the Lord. Like Job, who got really bad news, the worst news his health gone, his kids killed. And what did he do? Job one twenty. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And worshipped. Then in verse 22 In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job grieved. His heart was broken and yet, in his brokenness still was firm. He did not sin or charge God with wrong. You know, Job: 120 might be one of the hardest verses in the Bible for me. Not hard to understand. I get it. He got bad news he worshiped, but hard to live. Many of you know my son Sam. You're sitting right over there today. Um, And those of you who were here eight years ago, when I first came to Bethel, remember that Sam was a twin, and his brother Joshua died at 18 weeks gestation. And Serena underwent an experimental procedure to deliver Joshua and delay Sam's birth until he was developed enough to survive. And he was born at 24 weeks, and he weighed two pounds. But I remember sitting in the basement of the hospital after Joshua's delivery, and this verse came to mind, and he worshiped, lost his children, and he worshiped, lost his wealth, and he worshiped. I thought, how on earth is that possible? I knew that's what I was supposed to do, but I sure didn't feel it. No hands in the air, no goosebumps, just tears. You know, but that's not all of what worship is. That's the exciting stuff, the hand raising, the goosebumps. Todd calls that part of worship adoration. There's another phrase he uses to describe what we do when we're not feeling it. Acknowledgement. Acknowledge God, His sovereignty, His goodness, His justice, His perfection, His grace, and His ability to redeem the seemingly unredeemable. You know, if you ever need to change the soundtrack in your mind, that voice of doubt or accusation, or self-pity. The Psalms are a great place to go. Psalm 111, Psalm 112, change the soundtrack in your mind to one that is true. And I hope you'll find that acknowledgement is still worship, even when you aren't feeling it. Then finally, we see the second reason He's not afraid. It's in verse 8. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. The word steady here can also be translated as sustained or supported. And I think the NIV finishes this verse better where they say, in the end, they will look in triumph on his adversaries. He's not afraid because he is trusting in the power of the Lord to prevail in the end. It's kind of like watching a movie for the second time, or the fifth time if you're my kids, or at least one with a happy ending, where you watch it and you know how it's going to end. So you watch it with greater peace. You watch it detached a little bit from the ups and downs of the movie. You know what's going to happen. In the same way, the one who fears God knows that God's purposes are good And they will prevail, even if you have to wait to the end to see it or even begin to understand it. So that's the last fear, the fear of change. So if we look back, we see the fear of the Lord rules the family fears, the financial fears, the fear of the dark, and rules fear of change. So, how does the wicked man, the one who does not fear the Lord, how does he fare? Well, verse 10 tells us, The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So what does the wicked man see that makes him so angry? What is the it? He sees the blessing and honor given to the righteous man. He sees the family, the wealth, the peace and the joy in face of adversity The end of verse 9 says his horn is exalted in honor. The horn is a symbol of power and strength, usually used to describe a powerful king. So the wicked man is opposed to the righteous one. He's jealous of his success and the text says he melts away, which really means he becomes weak and powerless. Then the psalm ends by proclaiming that the desires of the wicked will perish. Which is this word for desire. It's the same one used back in Genesis to describe Adam and Eve's desire in the garden. Or in the Ten Commandments, it's translated as covet. So this desire is what prompted them, prompts the wicked man to overstep boundaries and exploit others. The exact opposite of the God-fear in Psalm 112. Who is just in his business dealing. Who is generous in his giving to the poor. He is merciful and gracious. So, to summarize what the psalm originally meant, those who fear the Lord obey the Lord and will be blessed abundantly. And as their fear of the Lord will control or rule their fears for their family, fears about money, fears of the dark, and fears of change. And despite this, they will be opposed by the wicked. So to explore what this psalm means to us now or today, how it applies to us, I want to start with four cautions. The first is, don't spiritualize this psalm too quickly. By that I mean, don't assume that all of these blessings that come to the God-fearer are only spiritual, or that none are material, or they're only realized when we die. So for example, Here's Jesus speaking in Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And those things, if we were to read a few verses before, were basic physical needs. Food, clothing, and water. God promises He will provide those things for you. So that's the first. Don't rush to spiritualize. Another mistake would be the same mistake that Job's friends made, to assume that if something is going wrong in someone else's life, or maybe your own, that certainly and surely they are wicked and the difficulties must be a result of their sin. As this psalm points out, the righteous will receive bad news. They will have enemies, they will have opposition, but their hearts will stay firm And fixed on the Lord. You know, we've got a great example of that right now on this campus. Brent mentioned it earlier. Two families who have small two year old daughters with cancer the Skiles family and the Spencer family. Both families, as they should be, are grieved, they're disappointed, and they're afraid at times. But before I left on vacation, I had the opportunity to spend some time with the Skiles. And I can tell you that their hearts are firm. Their fear of the Lord, their faith in His goodness and power is greater than those other fears. It rules and controls and informs those fears. In fact, both moms are writing these awesome blogs on CaringBridge. If you want to go... And you look up the family names, you can find those. They are beautiful to read. They are authentic in their pain, in their grief, and their fear, and yet they are worshipful. Acknowledging God based on what His Word says and not what their situation might seem to dictate. Just like my son whose fear of the wasp was greater than fear of the knife, their greater fear, the fear of the Lord, controls or rules Those lesser subordinate fears. So the first caution was don't over spiritualize. The second was don't assume sin. The third is don't dismiss sin. By that I mean don't read this passage and think that this is law talk, not gospel talk. This is old covenant and my uprightness, my obedience, my delight in pleasing the Lord, and maybe even my sin doesn't matter anymore because we live under the new covenant a covenant of grace and jesus paid the price for all of that now the last part of that statement is absolutely true jesus did pay the price for all of our sin but that doesn't mean that our sin doesn't matter even though it is covered paul addresses this thinking in romans 6 where he writes what shall we say then Not only has Christ's death paid the price, but it also, through the work of the Spirit, makes us a new creation, it gives us a new heart, and it begins to change our affections and empowers us to live uprightly, to walk in the newness of life. The process we go through, this change that people who've trusted in the work of Jesus and not themselves, they've trusted in the work of Jesus to make them right with God, to give them peace with God to pay the price for their sin, that change that we gradually, progressively, erratically, but ultimately certainly go through is called sanctification. It's the process of becoming more like Christ. So the first, don't over-spiritualize. Two, don't assume sin. Three, don't dismiss sin. And the final caution, don't be a hoarder. Specifically, Don't be a blessing hoarder. It's important for us to remember why God blesses us. It's not for our benefit, it's for others. Just as the blessing of the nation of Israel was done to point the nations to their God, the God of Israel, our gifts are for others to point them to our God. You know, in our culture, we are very individualistic, which has its advantages. It gives us the iconic figures like the the brave settlers going west, the cowboy. If you're old, it gave you John Wayne. If you're my age, it gave you Rambo. If you're a little younger, you have Jason Bourne. It gives us this lift ourselves up by the bootstraps mentality that helped make our country what it is today. But it also has its downsides too. Things we don't like to think about, but selfishness or a lack of concern for others but that's not the way that we the church are supposed to operate our blessings are not for us ultimately they're for blessing others as peter writes in 1 peter four ten, as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of god's varied grace Just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, we should not generate our own light, but reflect the light that comes from the Lord, His goodness, His provision, and blessing towards us. It should not stop with us, spiritually or materially. It should be shared graciously, mercifully, and compassionately with those around us. You know, all of this blessing comes to us today, not just through this general belief in God, or fear or respect in Him, but specifically through faith in Jesus. It is His death on the cross and His resurrection that gives us, as Paul says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It makes us sons and daughters of God and heirs of promise. By God's grace and through the work of the Spirit in us, Faith in Jesus makes our sanctification possible, graciously, which is the certain promise that we will become increasingly, progressively, slowly sometimes, but certainly more like the righteous God-fearer here in Psalm 112, and less and less like the wicked in verse 10, who has no hope and no power and without the desires of his heart. That's my hope is is that we would all through faith in Jesus through fear of the Lord that we would live lives marked by peace and joy in the face of struggle and adversity. And that others would take notice Not of how awesome our life is, but of how we respond in the face of that adversity. And even not how strong we are, but as a result of that, how awesome our God is. Please join me as we pray.